Dag. Derek, before I go into the little script I got here, let's uh <laughs> let's give our reactions to what we to what we just encountered. Yeah, that was that, <laughs> I, I don't have words for that. That was amazing. It was really strong. Man, it just seems like everyone plays the victim anymore. Everyone and loves to play the victim and loves to get whatever sympathy they ha- can and and just have an excuse. And then you got somebody who who is a literal victim. Exactly. That, that was done to him. <laughs> yes. He had nothing to do with it happening to him. Utterly innocent. Yes, 100%. And, and, and it's an, an emotional scar. It's a physical right. disability that he may have the rest of his life. And he doesn't see himself as a victim, though. That's what's amazing to me. Right. I mean, there's no victimhood in that man. He is all push forward. Positivity. I'm going to get out of this damn chair. It's amazing, man. Yeah. My mindset. Mindset is everything, I think, to, to be aggressive. I love it. Welcome to the aggressive life. Hey, this is Brian. I got a couple guests with me today. Well, one person's not a guest. It's Dirt, our very own favorite. Dirt, Dirt, how are you doing over there today? I'm doing good, BT. How are you, man? I'm all right, though. I got to tell you, I'm a little, I'm a little on edge about today. You probably don't know this about me, Dirt. I, yeah, I don't know why you'd be on edge. Do you know my my number one fear in all of life has always been since I was been an itty bitty kid. Rugby. No, no, not not <laughs> rugby, not rugby, but being paralyzed. Ah. Yes. Yeah, okay. Being paralyzed. Yeah, this is gonna touch a nerve then. It's it's <laughs> touch a nerve, uh, pun intended. Well, I didn't even mean no, that. Oh gosh, you, that sounds really heartless. <laughs> now that I said that. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, this this could be a tough interview for me because I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to face my fears and it's and it's not even happened to me. I'm I have full use of all of my limbs and let it just kind of, just just kind of freaks me out. So I am I'm actually looking forward to getting personally pushed today because we've got Rob Paler and he believes he was put on Earth to move people. He's a motivational speaker. He motivates people as a paraplegic. He was playing rugby at the University of California, Berkeley. And on May 16th, 2017, he was at the peak of his career playing a national championship against Arkansas State. And only five meters from scoring the first points of the game, his team gathers together to push across the goal line. Somebody puts an illegal headlock basically on him. And the next thing he knows, he can't move a muscle. He can't feel anything. Bam, like that, split second. He goes from college athlete and top of the world to quadriplegic. Doctors insisted he would never walk again. They went so far as to tell Rob that if he even learned to feed himself, he'd have beaten the odds. Well, here's the thing about Rob Paler. He doesn't listen to the odds. He does not listen to the odds. It's been a slow process. He's not finished. He has been walking in a pool with only one hand on the wall. He has progress going on. He's been making aggressive, aggressive moves. Today, he's going to share his story with us and push me and maybe help me get over my fear. Welcome to the aggressive life, Rob Paylor. <laughs> Brian, thank you so much for having me. And for those who are listening on audio, they won't see that introduction has me blushing as red as a tomato. So you're blushing. really good to be here. Why are you blushing so much? <laughs> 
<laughs> Those are nice words. I appreciate it. Well, dude, they're true words. They're totally true words. They really are. I am. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm impressed with you. I don't even know you very well yet, but I'm going to get to know you today. So let's go back to rugby. True, false. Rugby is the most manly sport going or not? True, 100%. So I did a podcast with um, Marcus Luttrell, and I think he put it best. Um, he's the lone survivor. Um, you know, Mark Wahlberg yes. played him in the movie and stuff. Just an incredible testimony. And uh, we were kind of chatting about rugby a little bit, and he said it's like war without weapons. <laughs> and I'm pretty much going to be going to be more true. And the things that we do on that field would would be felonies left and right um, if you were to do that just out, out in public. Um, but I love that about the sport. I love the physicality of it and that that toughness and you know grit and sacrifice that you put out there on the field. Um, it, I have never felt more alive than when I was on the rugby pitch and um, while I was playing. I thank God every day for it. And why do you think that rugby hasn't taken off more in the United States? You know, it, it's interesting. And there's there's people who have studied on this a lot and they could speak to it better than I. Um, but at one period in, in the kind of early 1900s, 1800s, rugby was a very popular sport in America. Um, they used to have 15s rugby in the Olympics. Hmm. Um, America was winning. We were the best in the world um, at the really? sport. And I think early on as America was trying to shift its identity and, and, you know, build its own sports culture and really just culture in general, it started pivoting from this European contact sport of rugby to this new American contact sport of football. And, uh, but you look at old pictures and stuff back when uh, UC Berkeley, which I played for, um, started playing the sport and they'd be filling up football sized stadiums of people watching rugby matches. But, um, we got our new identity with football. I wonder how the landscape of sports is going to change. I, I've been saying for a long time, Major League Baseball is just not long for this world. All due respect to all those owners who have invested billions in their teams, I just, I just don't see it. We don't. Kids aren't playing it anymore. It's too slow. It's too boring for most people. And you've got sports that are on the rise. Lacrosse you know, on the rise. And I wonder if, if rugby may actually be on the rise with all of the CE, CTE fears. Does rugby have the same CTE incidence as, you know, professional football? You know, if I'm not mistaken, I believe it's lower. And, um, and if I'm also not mistaken, I believe rugby is the fastest growing sport in North America. Really? Um, yeah, it's, it kind of depends where you are regionally. So over where I'm from in Sacramento, it's really a hub for rugby. We, we produce many national team players, all Americans, stuff like that. Kind of San Francisco Bay area, another hub, go out to the east and then just kind of scattered through. You'll see these, um, really dominant programs where kids from the towns, it's not uncommon at all for them to be playing, um, rugby. And, but yeah, when it comes to contact, it's kind of counterintuitive. Um, we usually see slightly lower injury rates in rugby than we do football, which is counterintuitive because we don't wear any pads. Yeah. And we've got, we've got a mouth guard. Um, and then there's just the piece of cloth that's between, you know, us and our shoulders that separates us from someone we're trying to tackle or run over when we have the ball. Um, it's very physically demanding and, and don't get me wrong. Rugby has, has its injuries as obviously we'll discuss today. Um, but I do view it as a safer alternative to football. What happened to me certainly tips, tips the scales. Um, <laughs> yeah. but looking back on it, I mean, I have a laundry list of injuries that I had playing football and, and not quite as many playing rugby. 
So my buddy, who's been on the podcast a few times, 512, 512 used to uh, play rugby, talks to me about it a good bit. He's, he was the hooker. So give us just a, give us, before we get into your situation, your accent, for those of us who are much more football oriented than rugby oriented, what's the hooker? What's the basic gist? We see all these guys getting together in a, in a huddle and just mashing their bodies on each other. I don't know if that's, you know, I don't know what's going, but just give us a broad overview of what you guys do. Yeah, I think when most people don't know rugby, hear the word hooker, they're thinking, they're thinking there's something <laughs> kind of weird going on there. Yeah, that was 512. Um, he was a male hooker. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So um, there's 15 players on a field for traditional 15s rugby, which is what I play. And uh, we could split that most broadly into two categories. That's the forwards, big guys. And then um, the second group would be the backs, quicker guys, more skill players. Now, props, hookers, locks. Uh, eight-man flankers. These are your forwards. These are the people who are going to, around doing a lot of the dirty work in the front row of the scrum, which is kind of that just massive human collision you were talking about. Um, these are going to be kind of stouter players, kind of like maybe, um, you know, a guard or center defensive tackle type body type that you'd see on a football football field, kind of lower center of gravity. Their job in this scrum is to just lock down their feet like a tree stump um, and being, so they don't get pushed back. Okay. So right to, there, how, how do you get to the scrum? How, how does the scrum start? What, what, is that just what every quote unquote play is, is a scrum? It's not. So it's essentially starting up a new phase of play. So it's like a jump ball. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of like that. Just way more physical. You have all the eight forwards on one team going against the eight forwards of another team bound up in unison doing these, you know, cadences and whatnot to generate force where I played is the lock. So it's kind of like a tight end time. At the time, uh, I'm still 6'5", obviously, but at the time I was 240 pounds, 20 years old. And that's pretty big for a guy who needs to be able to move the field for 80 continuous minutes. Rugby doesn't have any stoppages, uh, just halftime or if there were to be an injury. You have, you have to be able to generate a lot of force, but you got to be fit. And I was kind of just like a boiler room workhorse type player. Didn't have the best skills out there on the field. I wasn't going to be throwing any crazy passes or making any crazy moves. Um, but when it came to, you know, getting from play to play to play, putting myself in contact, winning in contact consistently over the course of that match, uh, I thrived at it. And that afforded me the opportunity to play at a very high level and do it well. So take us to that fateful moment against Arkansas State. What do you remember from it? Or do you even have no memory of it? I remember everything. Um, I remember more from that day than any day in my life. Uh, and I began the day thinking that was going to be the best day of my life. It's the national championship. I'm starting as a sophomore on the Cal men's rugby program. We're the number one ranked team in the nation. We're fighting for a 31st national championship on that day. And just to give some context of the success of the Cal rugby program and what it meant to be starting for this team um, in a game of, of this prestige, I think the only team that has more championships at any level, any sport, than us is the Harlem Globetrotters mm. and their games are rigged. Yeah, so right. we, were doing, <laughs> we were doing okay. Um, it was quite the opportunity. Um, I'm a lifelong athlete as early as I can remember. I was, you know, playing baseball or having my football pads on. Um, it was my identity. It was who I am. It was my pride and my purpose, my passion in life. Um, and I had reached the pinnacle. So anyways, I get up, I got those butterflies in my stomach. We've all felt them, right? Kind of that nerves of, of um, the nerves and excitement that you get mixed up in there. And um, you have a great pregame warm-up. We felt very confident going into this game. 
Arkansas State, I don't believe, has ever won a national championship. I'm really not sure how many they've even competed in, to be honest. We had a very, very much a been there, done that approach. Um, we knew their weaknesses and how to exploit them. We knew their strengths, you know, what to look out for. We felt good. Um, I remember, you know, standing there for the national anthem. I was praying to our father and Psalms 23, as I always did before I played it. It gave me strength. Are you allowed um, to, to do that out. at Cal Berkeley? I thought everyone had to be an atheist <laughs> to be at Cal Berkeley and had to be progressive under in nature and, and believe that God was a female or something. Are you actually able to do my, that? Under my breath, under my breath. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, going on out on this field, um, there you may you can be a little scared. It's it's going to hurt. Um, it's going to be painful. That is guaranteed. Um, but you know, you go out there and you you have to suppress that fear. You have to suppress those emotions be completely in that moment and um, do what needs to be done for, for your own success, for your teammates' success, for all those in the stands and the thousands of men, um, you know, who've played for and supported this program. So anyways, we kicked the ball off. I'm sprinting down that field. I'm psyched up. I'm ready to go. Very early on in this game, the other team commits a penalty. So we do what's called kicking it into touch. We kick it out of bounds and where the ball goes out of bounds, that's where we have what's called a line out which is sort of like in inbounds in soccer or basketball. We're five meters out. This is a very obvious mauling situation for us. And a maul is when the bigger guys regroup together in the single unit, kind of like a scrum, and we push to advance the ball, although it's done more impromptu. The defense's job is to come straight in and then stop us from pushing forward. It's the boiler room. It's where the big guys thrived, and I was a big guy. I knew this was my moment. I knew this was the time that I could go out and perform. Next day when we watch film, coach is going to be patting me on the shoulder saying, nice job, Rob. You helped us drive that mall in and get points on the board quickly. But as I'm doing this, the opposing players start making these illegal moves and the referee's not calling anything. So immediately three players come in from the side, um, all infractions, things you're not allowed to do in rugby, um, but the ref doesn't call it. And the first player who came in, he wraps my head around into a headlock. Um, he's pinning my chin down to my chest. Now, normally in rugby, this would be an automatic yellow or a red card, which is an immediate suspension from the game. Uh, but the ref wasn't calling anything. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, there's a lot going on here. Um, kind of some uncontrollable factors that I'm dealing with as I'm trying to put this in. So I, on one hand, I could stand up. I could throw my arms out to the side and, you know, say, hey, ref, what's going on? You're going to call this. Um, or I can keep moving forward. I can pound this thing in, you know, kind of, kind of shut out those things, make no excuses and keep moving. And, um, that's what I decided to do. I kept my shoulder level down. I kept my legs moving. As I did this, their number six, he chopped me down by my legs. So I start going to the ground. As I do that, the opposing player around my neck, he improves his bind. I'm trying to lift my head up. Mm. I can't do it. I remember I just closed my eyes. I gripped my teeth and then just snap. Ugh. I felt this god awful crunch in my neck. And it was just immediately poof. Uh, I could not move anything below my neck. Mm. I couldn't feel anything mm. below my neck. I closed my eyes for impact and I opened them. And immediately I was in a body I didn't recognize. I was in a life that I didn't recognize. And I was completely terrified. I had seen stories like this on TV before. Um, I think we've all seen them where something like this happens to somebody. They can't move anything. They can't feel anything. Get the updates years later. And these poor souls, they just never move again. Mm. And when I used to see these things, it was just like you, Brian. I think this, what a nightmare. Mm. I can't imagine this, this would ever happen to me. I mean, 
no way, not me. <laughs> no way, this couldn't be happening to me. Um, but it was happening. And it's the most real thing that I've ever lived. And um, I remember just all my goals, questioning them, thinking, am I ever going to be able to go back to school? Am I ever going to be able to see my friends or have a great career and graduate? Or, you know, one day I'll meet a girl and get married and start a family. And I started thinking more importantly, am I ever going to be able to feed myself again or just walk from point to point? Uh, you're thinking that on the field or this is in the weeks and months ahead? Immediately. Wow. Immediately. Yeah. So my mind was really scrambled because just to make this even crazier, the referee didn't even stop play at that point. So they were continuing to play around what looked just like a corpse Gosh. of a body with me laying there. Come I was screaming on. as loud as I could. Um, but I couldn't move it. Anymore. You were screaming. You were able to generate breath and all that stuff. Yeah. As loud as I could, Gosh. but it, it probably wasn't much louder than just a regular Gosh. talking voice. Um, and my training staff, they sprinted over. They, they create kind of a barricade around me. Um, our main trainer looks at me. She said, Rob, Rob, what's wrong? Um, I say, I broke my neck. I can't move anything. I'm, I'm really freaking out. Um, so they create this barricade. The play comes back over to us. They're kind of blocking folks, making sure they don't drop on top of me. Uh, because if they did, I, I certainly would have led to a worse injury. I, I might not have even survived that. Um, we ended up scoring and this is what stopped things where I could just kind of think and they're really taking their time, um, trying to make sure that my neck is stabilized. They're, they're kind of poking and prodding me, you know, on my shoulders and legs and, Yo, Robert, can you feel this? What about this? What about this? My answer is just no, no, no. They're saying they put their um, their finger in my hand. All right, Robert, squeeze my hand as hard as you can. I mean, I'm giving everything I have. Nothing is happening. Wiggle your toes, Robert. Nothing is happening. I'm just I'm closing my eyes and I'm praying as hard as I can. I'm saying, God, I need you right now. I don't know why this happened. I don't know what is going to happen from here, but I need you. And um, eventually, they put me on the stretcher. I went over to the hospital we take some medical imaging that's when my doctor comes back and gives that prognosis um that you said in the intro where he says robert you'll never walk again you'll never move your hands you will be lucky if you can do something like pick up a piece of pizza and bring it to your face if you can do that you made it if you can just feed yourself you beat all the odds and he doesn't stop there he recommends spinal fusion surgery to me he explains that the disc in which he might see five six vertebrae ruptured into my spinal cord causing this paralysis I also had a fracturing on the C5 and C6 vertebrae. The damage that was done to my spinal cord might only continue unless we fuse this region, essentially permanently casting it, um, going in through the front of my neck to perform the surgery. He says it's my best chance at any sort of recovery, but and there's always going to be some kind of but, right? Um, it was a potentially life-threatening surgery. Mm. Uh, for this, they moved the esophagus over to operate on the spinal cord. My body was already incredibly deconditioned. You got a lot of important real estate right here. If something was a little bit off, this surgery could get bad really quick. And he told me I had 30 minutes to make my decision. <laughs> Gosh. Now, hold on. You said your your body was decommissioned. What do you, what do you mean by that? Just deconditioned. I was spiking a fever up to 103, uh, 104 okay. degrees already. Um, my, you know, my, my brain had essentially been disconnected, uh. um, from the rest of my body. Um, so just the implications that happen from there, your body is severely, um, weakened. If there's some sort of complications wow. in the surgery, they just get exponentially increased. You're saying that you're, you had this on the field and they tell you, you have 30 minutes to decide on this surgery. At yeah. Probably about 
three hours. After three hours, which are in the midst of the most stressful, most painful three hours of your life. You have to make the most dis- important decision for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Yep. My word. Yeah. So he told me I could make some phone calls before I made this choice. So the first phone call I made was to my religious advisor. I didn't have the odds on my side. I didn't have signs of life showing up in my body. I didn't have some doctor that was, said that everything was going to be okay, but I knew I had God. And uh, I needed that connection. So I make this phone call to ask for prayers, to ask for advice. And thank goodness I did because the advice he gave me that day, he gave me so much power and what felt like a powerless situation. It's just carried me ever since. And he said, Robert, what happened to you is terrible. And throughout this journey, there's going to be a lot of things that you can't control. But the one thing you can control is your mindset. So your positivity, your ambition, your willingness to wake up every day and fight this is up to you. This injury can't take that away from you. So I knew that the road ahead of me would have immense challenges. And even just the decision to go into the surgery, emotions were just swirling around in my brain like crazy. It's so hard to be able to calm all that down, to just make a clear-headed decision. But just having him tell me those simple words that I was always in control of my mindset gave me something that I could focus on. Um, something that I had power over. And that helped give me the strength to decide to go into the surgery. Uh, for our listeners, I'm talking with uh, talk with Rob right now uh, via computer, so we're seeing each other. So good news, just to, let, just to let a little bit of tension stress out. As he's talking, he's moving his hands and his arms a lot. So, 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 so at least we have a so, some good news here. So if you're really, really hyper bumming out, what I'm seeing here is pretty encouraging. He's got some stuff he's going to share with us. I, I just wanted to give you like a little bit of good news in case you were at all like me with that. Your number one fear in life is being, being paralyzed. So, um, how does, how does this work? Spinal cord gets severed is why I understand the spinal cord gets severed and it never grows again. From what I understand, you can't move your arms in your hands, and yet now you are moving your arms, your hands. So what is science? What's willpower? You know, just fill me in. It's a lot of mixture of factors. So to kind of explain how this injury works, um, we can think of it as a light switch and a light bulb. When you, you know, you flick a switch, an electrical current gets sent through a wire that goes to the bulb and it's activated. Um, in the human body, that light switch would be our brain. That's what's sending the signal, our spinal cord, uh, would be the wires. There, these are living wires that that exist from our brainstem and branch out um, to all the muscles in our body to help us move them, to help us feel. And then our, our muscles and the, the sensory sensory functions would be that light bulb. And what happened essentially in my injury is that that wire was was snipped, was cut, frayed. Um, when you do that to a light switch, you can turn it on and off. The switch is fine. The switch works. The light bulb is fine. It's just the wire that's that's conducting that that um, electric current um, is not working anymore you know it needs to be repaired now the spinal cord is like a fiber optic cable there's many many nerves and the, the system is also very interconnected so for me I actually um, what's called an incomplete injury the most broad classification of spinal cord injuries be complete and incomplete complete means that you have no motion or feeling whatsoever below your injury level now in the beginning I didn't and after that kind of spinal shock period had, had sort of um, dissipated over the next few hours, a deep pressure sensation. So you could put a knife in my leg and it wouldn't hurt, but I'd say, ah, there's something there. Mm. And 
then with these injuries, things become very relative. And relatively, that was a good thing to have. It showed hope. It showed that there were still signals that were interacting in all parts of my body. Um, it wasn't a very strong signal and it didn't go to my motor function at all at that point, but there was life. You know, there was some hope. And even for the complete injury, there's ways for regeneration. So there's a few different ways. One is these are living wires. They're not made out of copper and, and other metals. Um, these wires can grow. Living wires. The I like that. Yeah. Yeah. With, with our nervous system. So, um, they do grow. It's very, it's a very slow process. And when you have these injuries, your body's response is to develop scar tissue in that area, just like you would have, you know, if you got a cut on your skin or, um, you know, an ACL tear or something like that, the scar tissue can't conduct a signal. So it essentially blocks it off that scar tissue can, um, can hinder that's a, a recovery. That's why these injuries are so chronic. The second way, is um, that you can find new pathways to the same muscle. So like I said, the nervous system is interconnected. The muscles that open the hand don't have just one nerve group that's making it over there. Your brain just uses that same nerve group over time because that's what it's used to and that's what's worked. So for me and other people with injuries like me, we do thousands and thousands of repetitions trying to activate a muscle group. And as you do that, the brain kind of experiments with this blockage oh. that it's seeing in the spinal cord. And over time, maybe it tries out a new route to, to work its way to this muscle group. And then you get something like a twitch of a finger or a twitch of a toe. And the, over time, you continue to do this. The muscle gains back its strength. The signal gets a better connection. Um, to where you're moving around your arms, you're um, able to feed yourself and you're walking. Wow. That's, that's great. That's fantastic. So that's when I'm seeing somebody in quote unquote rehab, they're, they're shaken to do the m most seemingly simple movements. They're acting like they're trying to bench press 500 pounds, but there's nothing. It's, that's the resistance that they're feeling finding a new neural pathway. Mm -hmm. Is that right? That's, that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And it, like I said, it just takes so many reps and it takes so much effort for, for much, much of my motion. Um, like say in my hands or in my legs, if I were to just give like a typical amount of effort, you know, in my face or these, you know, these areas in my body that are completely connected, um, I wouldn't even get a twitch of a muscle. But if I really strain, if I give it everything that I got, I can get this muscle to move a little bit. And over time, as I do this, that, that strength, um, the signal of this, you know, it increases, you know, to where eventually it's, you know, it's habitual. So I got to tell you here in your story, uh, these Arkansas state people and the referee is really pissing me off. I got to tell you, I, I don't, I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm more upset about a referee, not doing his job, illegal stuff, keep playing while you're actually down. I'm just hearing the story and I'm pissed off. What do you like? Yeah. I was pissed off. Was? Um, I was. Yeah, key word there. So wow. at first, you know, we didn't really know what happened to me. Um, the game footage was not a very good angle up in the press booth. It just looked like a mass of players have gone down and one player didn't didn't get up. And I was so in the moment that it was it was hard for me to just keep tabs of every little thing that was going on. It's as far as I knew, you know, there were there were some bad binds. The you know, the play went down, but it happened so fast I didn't have, you know, everything analyzed. It was about three days later into my injury that this evidence started to produce itself. Um, still footage from sidelines in the end zone, videos from just bystanders holding up their camera 
that clearly showed what was done to me was illegal. There was a bind around my neck. That bind brought me down to the ground um, and increased as I went down, to which led to this injury. Um, and when I saw that, I was filled with so much rage, so much hatred. In the sport of rugby, if someone hits you, you hit them back. You hit them harder. That was my instinct. I had just been hit harder than I ever could possibly be in my entire life. Um, everything that I was going through, which at the time was pneumonia. I couldn't even swallow anything. I lost 60 pounds a month. I couldn't breathe for myself. I, it was torment. It was torture. All of that was because of the actions that someone did to me. So when I looked at these pictures and I watched these videos, I had a rage within me that I could barely control. Barely. I, w I worked back to that control your mindset principle that my religious advisor gave me. It was very much one of those WWJD moments where I'm thinking, okay, okay, God, what do I do with this? I'm praying about it a lot. I've got this, I've got this hatred within me. Um, you know, and, and from what I know about, about our faith, that, that hatred is toxic. Um, and we're, we're taught to forgive always. You know, not, not just at a certain degree. And when it gets over that, you have an excuse. No, there's never an excuse. We always have to choose forgiveness. So I did. People would ask me, Robert, what do you think about this guy? What's your take? And I would say, I forgive him and I wish him well. It's controlling my mindset. But within me, I still felt a lot of anger, I felt a lot of hatred to that guy still internally. Regardless of what I was feeling, I just, I continued to say those words. Everything that came out of my mouth was that I forgive him and I wish him well. And as I said those words, and as time went on, that hatred slowly went down and that anger slowly vanished. Where Here I am today, completely freed of all of that negativity, realizing that if I were to hold on to that anger for the rest of my life and withhold forgiveness from that person, the only person I'd be hurting is myself. That person, is that person the referee, the guy in the headlock or the guy who hits you from behind? You know, it's most, it's the guy in the headlock. Yeah. Um, the referee, I don't know what he saw on that field. It's possible that he, he couldn't have seen this and, and he didn't choose it. Um, you can take away every factor, but one. And, uh, and I would have been fine if that guy didn't have that arm lock around my neck. We, we wouldn't be on this call today. You know, I'd, I'd be out playing rugby. This, none of this would have happened. Um, it was that, that one move that, that certainly led to this outcome. And, and he's never reached out to you. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, he's never reached out. He's never said he's sorry. Um, I'm approaching 2,000 days that I've been battling this injury. Um, but I forgive him whether he's sorry or not. And I don't, I do hope that, that he knows that. Um, because I don't know what he's going through and, uh, he, he could be going, going through a lot. I hope that he reaches out and I hope that I can tell him those words, you know, in person or over the phone. But, um, regardless, I, I've made my decision. I forgive him. But do you think he even knows? Is there, is there a chance he doesn't know? Uh, pretty slim. Yeah, pretty slim. And that, you know, the rugby community really rallied, um, around all of this. Um, you know, I go to a Barnes and Noble and nobody knows who I am, but I go to a rugby match and it's, you know, the pseudo celebrity is here, Robert Paylor. It's just amazing. Um, how, you know, this niche sport, um, it's just incredible how these folks rallied around and shared the word. So I think it's, it's nearly impossible, um, that he, that he hasn't heard of it. I just hope that forgiveness goes through. Yeah. It's, it's a really good word, the forgiveness, because it's been said before, I'll quote somebody who said it, you know, uh, bitterness is as fruitless as eating rat poison and expecting the rat to die. Yep. 
we're, we're the ones that die. And I think that that energy that we spend rehearsing comebacks and rehearsing vengeance, all, all that energy, we only have so much energy in our life, so much energy to build a life or so much energy to have an anger fantasy. And uh, I think forgiveness is a, is a really, really big deal. But <laughs> there's some things to be easy to forgive for, but others like... Man, forgiving that somebody hurt my feelings in a meeting is not the same kind of forgiveness that you're having to practice. How are you doing it? What what got you to be able to do it? Or are you still having to do it and convince yourself to do it every day? Because forgiveness is normally a process. Yeah, you know, it was a process. And that process probably lasted a few months to where I could I could really say that I was that all that hatred and anger was completely gone um, within me. And it was deliberate and it was just it was mind over matter. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was trusting God and, and his teachings, um, that, that this was the path for me to take. I just, I kept falling back, falling back on that kind of WWJD type, type mindset, to be completely honest. Um, it was, uh, it was simple. Um, that doesn't mean it, it wasn't difficult, um, because it was being in control of, of your emotions, you know, suppress that. Um, and cho- choose the right choice because I knew what it was. I think most of us do know, know what it is. It's just acting on it. That's difficult, but I sure I'm glad I did because it's paid off. For those of us who are younger and weren't around for those wristbands <clears throat> or we were older and we're kind of outside of the, uh, the Christian club, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I'm really challenged to think more highly of those wristbands than I used to. I used to hate those wristbands. I just felt like it was... Christian advertising and trying to be one of the cool kids. But my goodness, I don't know that I've actually met somebody who's had as high of an octane test about what would Jesus do is you. Oh my gosh, dude, you're freaking paralyzed and you're taking the words of Jesus and you're saying, I'm going to forgive somebody even though they've changed the rest of my life. And my, my, my question is for the rest of us, like, okay, what exactly is it you can't forgive? What, 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 what is it that you can't get over? What, what, what did your girlfriend do to you? What did your boss say to you? What did your, what I, it's hard to think of many things that could be worse that would happen to us than somebody responsible for taking away my mobility, taking away all that that affords. And for you to be pushing us on this, Rob, this is freaking epic, man. Way to go. Thank you. So where are you right now in, in the healing process? Um, so after the surgery was very successful, I found myself in this critical period where, like I explained, I was battling pneumonia. I, I couldn't swallow anything. Um, I mean, death was Did with me. Did you say me. 60 pounds in one month you lost? Yeah, my 60 gosh. pounds in a month, all of it. Everything I worked for to build up my body and my strength, um, gone, completely gone. And, uh, and I couldn't do anything about it. I was uh, bedridden for the vast majority of that one month. And um, I needed my faith for every second of that. I needed um, my family. I needed my friends. I needed these complete strangers and living angels who came there to visit me in the hospital every single day to say that they believed in me because they believed in me in the moments where it was difficult for me to believe in myself. And when trained medical professionals didn't believe in me, that's what kept me going. And that carried me on. Eventually, we started thinking about where I was going to do my rehabilitation, uh, where I was really going to fight out of this paralysis. And we looked for the best facility in the United States. That's Craig Hospital, uh, just outside of Denver, Colorado. That's the one we chose. And uh, I show up to Craig, and <laughs> honestly, I was not expecting some pretty picture or uplifting environment. Um, everybody in that place is dealing with the same situation as me. 
a lot of them even worse. I'm thinking there's not going to be like some pick me up of a place, but I show up and the patients, they've got smiles on their faces and they're saying, you know, Robert, welcome. We're so excited that you're here. You're going to love it here. And I was kind of like grabbed by the shoulders and say, you know, Hey, you're supposed to be sad and depressed. Like, why are you smiling? Like blink twice. If you need me to help you get out of here. (laughs) That was the reality of this place. I mean, the staff, they just, they looked at us and they saw potential, not a bunch of broken bodies. Mm. And, um, my doctor, my neurologist, the first meeting that we had, he said, Robert, yes, what happened to you is terrible, but we don't know where you're going to progress from here. You might walk out of these doors one day and you very well might not. But the one thing we do know is we're going to give you every bit of modern science and medicine has to offer. We're going to give you every bit of effort um, that we have to make sure that you walk out of those doors. So they didn't give me a guarantee that everything was going to be okay, um, but they guaranteed me their best. And I went for it. It was eight to nine hours of very intense physical rehabilitation every day. I'm trying to get somebody that can't move to move. And that just so I was to be about 80% of my body. But in the coming months, I came into the hospital bed in a stretcher, not able to move anything below my collarbone to where I looked down and I could twitch a finger and I could twitch a toe. And a year later, it's about 365 days I spent in a hospital. Mm. I was able to get up on my feet into that walker with assistance. And I walked out of the hospital doors. I did the impossible. And I ate that piece of pizza that I was told I'd be lucky if I would ever eat again. And that's not the last time I've ordered pizza and go to rehab. But um, you know that that (laughs) then afforded me the opportunity to return back home um, to Sacramento, where I spent that summer there preparing for my return to UC Berkeley over at Cal to get my degree um, in business administration from the Haas School of Business, where I graduated in May of 2020, all while continuing at my rehab to where now I can stand up out of my wheelchair into my walker on my own. And my max walking endurance is 400 yards. Uh, this journey is very long and it's Dude, difficult. You can walk right now unassisted, not holding on to anything for 400 yards? With a walker, I can walk 400 With a walker. yards. Well, yeah, still, so it, wow, dude, come on. Yeah, that's amazing. My gosh. That, now, with that kind of that kind of progress, those kind of metrics, is is the advancement linear or at some point is it not linear? Because if I'm going like after two years, you're doing that, do you just keep progressing or do people just stop at a certain level? Yeah, so um, it's interesting. The doctors, they told me that my optimal window of recovery would be in the first six to nine months. That's when I could see the most progress. Um, my total window of recovery would be around two to three years. After that, I should expect it to completely plateau. Um, my spinal cord is just where it's going to be for the rest of its life. Now, I'm about five and a half years um, out of this injury, and I continue to see progress. And I think the reason that the statistics are the way they are um, in large part is because that's when people kind of give up. Mm. Um, you know, they've been going this, man, I've been doing this for three years and it is hard. Um, don't get me wrong. It's, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. And every day when I, when I look at that walker, man, there's times when I sit there on the edge of my bed and I'm staring at that thing for like 20 minutes before I actually get up into it and start going because it is difficult. Um, but I think that, you know, the more we have this patient trust, um, in this process and, and we stay consistent. It's not always the most intense workout in the world, but it's consistent. And we, you know, we keep, we keep going after it. We keep putting in the effort that needs to be put in. We, we continue to see that progress. Um, so I'd say, honestly, the progress is like a staircase. Um, so I'll just kind of, I'll be doing my thing. I'm working out. I'm seeing no progress, no progress for could be one month, two months, nothing at all. And then just pop 
I just like, wow, I just, I just, you know, doubled my PR walking. And then I kind of stay there and I stay there and then it pops. And, you know, during, during that kind of flat period, it takes a lot of trust, um, in this process and, um, you know, and a lot of prayer for that strength to keep moving forward. Cause it's very tough to put in that much effort and see, see nothing. What a great line, quote unquote, that's when people give up. So they say two to three years, probably not for scientific reasons, but that's what the data shows. The data shows that's how much time people have for stick to I, man, that's, that's great. I just found out a, um, we've got, um, we got um, my day job is leading a church. We've got a staff of about 300 people here that, uh, that we lead. And I uh, just found one of our younger staff members got married a few years ago. He's, he's still in his twenties. And I just found the most like depressing statistic was that everybody in his wedding party is all divorced now. He's the only one left. And it's like, you're, you're out of your twenties. It's like, just people giving up. Oh, it's too hard. Oh, they're not my, they're not my soulmate. Oh, I can't. It's so hard. Even though I can walk and I can feed myself with pizza and I could do a 10K and I could bend down, tie my shoes. It's so hard. If only I had it easy like Rob Paler. He has it so easy. You know, I, I just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be a motivator. I'm motivated by, yeah. by, by belittling, but you know, what I'm trying to do because this is what you do now. You're, you're, you're a motivator. You said you're put on people to help people move. Is that what you say and believe? Yep. Born to move people. So even if you're not mm-hmm. moving all that well yourself, you're moving people. How are you moving people right now? Yeah. You know, I, I think this is such a great question because it actually really, um, really helps explains, you know, what, what has kept me going the last five years, you know, my commitment was to walk. And get better. Um, you know, you know, in a marriage, it, it's a lifelong commitment in a relationship to a, to another person. Um, and I think when we make those commitments, it has to be a selfless commitment, um, a commitment that's dedicated to someone else. And that's what keeps us going. When I first got hurt, I just wanted to walk and get better for myself. You know, it's a selfish desire. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, who's going to blame me for not just being able to move my body for my own personal satisfaction? And it all changed pretty quickly for me when I just started getting flooded with thousands of messages from people all over the world, um, really pouring their hearts out, um, saying, Robert, um, I'm, you know, I'm going through stage four cancer right now. And, um, you know, doctors tell me I only have months to live and me witnessing you take on your challenge and fight it every single day is giving me the strength to keep moving forward. Um, you're saving my life. People who have, who are dealing with severe depression, suicidal thoughts, loss of loved ones, terrible situation. It's a situation nobody should ever have to go through. It was filling my, filling my heart so much, um, to be able to see, um, that what this impact was making on others. Um, because the biggest thing that I lost with my injury was not my ability to move. It was my purpose in life. My purpose was to be a good athlete. Mm. I loved it. I could, you know, and I could, I could celebrate that with my teammates. I had this selfless commitment to them. And, uh, I was, you know, I was achieving excellence in my life. And then because of something I couldn't control, it was completely gone. And that's the thing that I prayed about most was just purpose in my life. I would, you know, I always, um, thought that God has a plan for our lives and that plan is good. And it was really hard to see how this injury could possibly be a part of any plan. And if it was, that plan seemed pretty messed up, but I still, you know, I had trust in that plan that, um, that God would heal me. 
and like more importantly, God would, would use this injury for a greater purpose. When I started to see the impact it was making just online and over social media, um, it was evident how this purpose was really developing in my life, really a mission from God to take what happened to me and turn it into a gift. And that's a gift that I can share with other people um, through these lessons and experiences. And um, eventually, when I got back to college, these these opportunities started to present themselves to go and speak, to share my story with this overall sentiment in overcoming adversity, that you look at me and you can see a person that deals with significant challenges every single day. It's the nature of my adversity. That's not the case for most people, but whether challenges are, are visible or not, everybody's dealing with something. Everybody also has something that paralyzes them, yes. I think. Yes. Maybe not physically, like for me, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, everybody has something that stops them from being their best. And these tools that have helped me to overcome my physical paralysis and also that mental, emotional paralysis to keep moving forward, I think it can help everybody overcome those things that paralyze them. I got together with my rugby coach and we spent months crafting um, a message and principles that have helped me in my life that I can then go out and share with others, um, with God's people to help to help them be able to pursue through these challenges and to, to stay strong um, in their faith and in their relationships. You know, it's revealed the greatest purpose of my life. It's something that's so strong. And you might think I'm a lunatic or a liar when I say this, but it's so strong that I wouldn't even change what happened to me. If I could go back to May 6, 2017 and uninjure myself and make this never happen, I wouldn't. And I couldn't because this ability and purpose to make a positive impact on the lives of others through sharing this message and speaking is so much more powerful than the abilities that I had to move my body. Interesting. Hmm. You're, you're, so you're saying that uh, th this affliction you have, if that's what you want to call it, it's opened up a door for doing ministry and helpfulness that you wouldn't have had had you not had this affliction. That's right. Yeah. Wow. That's deep. That's really deep. I, I, think, I think we all want a life filled with purpose. We just don't want it to be difficult. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, we want to have our cake and eat it too, but it's the, it's the difficulty that all too frequently is what prepares us for the purpose, whatever it is. Yeah. I, I think, I think, um, it's so much easier to, to find God and, and to find purpose, um, when we're in those low points of our life, um, when we're, you know, we're reaching and we're grasping for something and there's, there's so much that's not there. Um, but God is there. I certainly felt that, um, in that hospital yeah. and, and my lowest points when, you know, I'm, I'm reaching and I'm, and I'm searching for, um, you know, the ability to, to be able to just go outside and the ability to get dressed and, and ready for the day in less than an hour and, you know, trying time and time and again to just, to just, um, you know, do something like tie my shoes. Um, right. when, you know, I'm reaching those things and I'm not finding it, I'm, I'm finding God. And that's what I'm finding that God is all I need. I'm reminded of second Corinthians one, four, that says <clears throat> it is the God who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So you're living that one. You, you've, you've gotten comfort by God, and now you're able to comfort people that only you could comfort because of your situation where maybe they wouldn't receive the same message of comfort from myself. So that, that's great, Rob. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. All right, so we normally, we normally end our time with the lightning round. Uh, lightning round is when I give you a topic and you've got to answer it like quick as lightning, like 
like one, two senses. <laughs> yeah, I know. This, I knew it's going to happen. Like, whenever I'm talking with a, a true blue communicator, I talk about this, they get, they light up. They're like, oh, 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 put me in, coach. You're smiling like a butcher's dog right now. I'm like, okay, a communication challenge. I love it. So we're, we're going we're gonna to modify the lightning the lightning round for you. Instead of giving you something like, you know, what's, your mo- what's the most aggressive mistake you've ever made or some such thing, I'm going to give you quotes that you've actually used and I want you to uh, do some lightning fire motivation for us. It can take longer than one or two sentences. Just like, just motivate us here. Nothing wrong with being a little motivated. Are you, are you, are you up for the challenge, Rob Paler? Are you up for it? I'm so up for the challenge. Let's go. Okay, here we go. Quote number one. While my life exceeded all the expectations that were set five years ago, I still maintain hope for more. We all have one life. I've realized that. And I'm going to make the most of this life. I'm going to get out of this wheelchair one day or I'm going to die trying. Awesome. Here we go. Another one. I will not quit. I won't quit. And I can't quit. I will either get out of this wheelchair permanently one day or I will die trying. Yeah. I have this no quit mindset because of that selfless commitment to others. Um, when I feel like quitting on myself, I don't quit because I'm doing it for somebody else. That's good. Let's, let's interact on that more. You're doing it for somebody else. So much of our stick to bravado comes around to us feeling like we're superior or others should be inspired by me because I'm so disciplined. But that's not what you just said. What do you mean that you're doing it for others? What Explain. Yeah, it's a selfless commitment. And um, I would love to tell you the story of how it all began. And um, it was about five days into my injury that my high school was hosting a prayer service for me uh, to pray for my healing and pray for my strength. And um, to actually give some more context to this, I used to coach youth rugby camps um, in the summers. I would come back from Berkeley to Sacramento, and I'd coach youth, youth age range like 10 to 14. And there's this one camper there whose name was Talon. And Talon was one of the smaller kids out there on the field, but he's like played with heart. You know, he's like a Rudy type. And I remember I would give him the ball and I'd pick him up like bobbing and weaving between these 13 year olds so he could go score. And it was shared this real bond. And it was on the day of this prayer service um, that my dad showed me a picture on his phone of someone who I didn't recognize and was obviously fighting for his life. Um, you know, his hair is white and thin. His skin is pale. His body's just skin and bones. And then my dad tells me that this kid is Talon and Talon was fighting stage four cancer. And it was a part of this picture that his mom wrote a caption and it read along the lines of Talon wanted so badly to be at this prayer service today to pray for Robert, but had to be in the hospital undergoing chemo. And he's wearing his Jesuit rugby shirt that the Jesuit rugby team gifted him in his first round of chemo. And the message goes on further and it says this line that is just seared into my soul and it changed everything for me. It said, stay strong and keep smiling, Robert. Your strength helps town stay strong too. And when I heard those words, I saw this picture of a kid who was fighting for his life, praying for me, my commitment forever changed. I was thinking here, here is the epitome of that selfless commitment. This kid has everything in the world to complain about. He's a 15 year old kid fighting cancer, should have his whole life ahead of him, should be able to do whatever he wants, but he has to be sitting in in this chair undergoing chemotherapy. And he's not saying, woe is me. Look at all that I'm going through. He's thinking about me and he's praying for me. 
that I, I just try to epitomize and, and live with that sort of practice, that sort of selfless commitment every single day. And I try not to let that memory of him die out because after about four years and a long heart fought battle with, uh, with cancer, Talon passed away. Um, but Talon died a winner and he died a fighter and he lives on in so many of us that we ought to live like he did, that we live with that selfless commitment to others. Um, cause that's what helps us maintain positivity. Um, you know, whether, whether we're in, we're in a hospital or we're just going through a little thing that shouldn't be controlling our mindset, but it is, um, that sort of selfless commitment is key to overcoming challenges because that life lived for others is a life of purpose. And when we have that purpose, there's really no challenge that we can't overcome. Good stuff. Here's another one. We might not have control over our mood, whether we're happy or sad, but we can be optimistic people all the time. We can be ambitious people all the time. Yeah, that's controlling our mindsets. Um, I think our mindset is distinctive from our mood. We can't just flip a switch and decide whether we're going to be happy or whether we're going to be sad in a given moment. But I do believe that no matter how we're feeling, we can keep moving forward. We can always take a mountain of a task that might be in front of it, and we can boil it down into one simple thing, the decision to control our mindsets, the decision to just keep moving forward. Last one. I'm going to be a damn good man. I'm going to live a damn good life. <laughs> Do you mind if I extend this one from the lightning round too? Because it's pretty Please, beautiful. yes, of course you can. Hey, like I'm going to tell the paralyzed guy can't do something. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yes, so you can basically do anything you want, yes. Yeah, so it was it was um, this incredible life-changing experience I had. It was one year after my injury. I was invited to go on a religious pilgrimage to Lourdes, France, um, a, place of, a place of miraculous healing. I was going there really hoping and, and praying to be healed. Um, that I would, that I would, I would stand up. I'd be completely healed. And, um, you know, over, over the course of this pilgrimage, um, I didn't have that, that miraculous, um, instantaneous physical healing that I was praying for and I was asking for. Um, but I had this incredible experience and how it went. We were going up to, um, on this mountain and it was all gravel. Um, a, a beautiful place, the Stations of the Cross. And there was, um, very difficult for me to get up there. Um, because I was in a wheelchair. Most people probably would have said like, you know, sorry, Rob, we just can't help you out here. This is just not accessible. It's not going to work. And I would have been okay with that. Um, but these people all rallied, rallied together. Um, one of them was a guy who only had one functioning lung and, uh, the other, a couple of volunteers. And I mean, they were just huffing and puffing and sweating. Um, people who were complete strangers like a week ago, um, really putting themselves out there for me, um, especially the guy, you know, who's dealing with this cancer treatment, one functioning lung. He said he was winded just going up a flight of stairs. I couldn't imagine what he was going through there. And, um, all of us, we call them malads, uh, kind of sick or injured folks. We got together, we started talking about our experience. And, um, it was in that moment that I was talking about what I was going through and, and how this guy was helping me, how all these people were helping me out throughout, throughout the last year. And I said, for the first time, and I actually meant it, I said, I might never walk again. And I started crying at that point because that was the first time that I ever admitted I might never get out of my wheelchair ever again. Before that, I would kind of say it just get my nurses and doctors off my back, you know, because they'd kind of be like, well, you know, hope for the best, but pre prepare for the worst. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm going to make this happen. Yes. But in this moment, I kind of, I came to terms with that. I said, I might never walk again, but I'm going to be a damn good man. And I'm going to live a damn good life because I have, I have God with me. I have these living angels here around me, here to pick me up and keep me going when I can't carry myself. That's why I said I, I wouldn't change what happened to me. 
um, because of, because of these people that are surrounded with me and because of the experiences that I've been given. Um, it was life changing. And, um, I think we all have those, those living angels around us. I know we all have, um, God with us every second of our lives that no matter what we go through, we can always be good people and we can always live good lives. We have to trust in that. Yeah. What I'm really challenged by with what you're, what you've talked about with us the last hour or so was, you know, I started off with, um, just being freaked out that this could happen to me someday. How would I respond? And I, and I, I have other people in my life who are, you know, who, who have gone through the same affliction. We had, um, uh, we, we had a guy on, um, a few, a few years ago, Ryan Atkins, who's quadriplegic and he's not, he, he hasn't had the same recovery as you have for a variety of reasons. All the injuries are different, but you know, I, I find myself just freaking out over what, what if that happened to me? But what I'm hearing from you though today is really what it's about isn't so much your physical condition as it is your mental and spiritual condition. And maybe, maybe that, that freaks me out so much. It's a sign that my spiritual condition might not be as good as I think it is. Maybe it freaks me out so much because I'm not sure that I could be happier, have a, to use your words, a damn good life if I wasn't doing the active things I do right now. So that's a, that's, that's a really good push, brother. I appreciate that greatly. Yeah, absolutely. It's such an important uh, perspective to maintain that, you know, what, what truly matters in life isn't, isn't our physical abilities or objects that we have. It, it's all that, it's all that which lies within. These are the things that we take with us. This is the meaning of, of our lives. People don't look back and, you know, nobody was going to say like, wow, you know, Rob Paylor, he could really lay a tackle. You know, now, now they're going to say, you know, wow, Rob Paylor, he really moved forward with resilience. Um, and they took what should have been a curse. And he turned it into a gift and he gave that, he gave that gift to others. And, um, you know, that, that's true meaning. That's true purpose. It's, it's scary. It's scary to get there. And it's scary to think of anything like this happening. But, um, after having really gone through the thick of it and kind of come out, come out the other side, I, I can confidently say that, that when we trust in God and we act with God throughout these challenges, um, that we can all find that greater purpose in our lives and that it's always going to be okay. Rob, is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't talked about today? You know, one thing I would, I would say, um, is to always be grateful. And, um, and I like, I like to end on that because I always like to remind myself that, um, there's a lot of times when I wake up and, you know, I'm paralyzed and I'm thinking, wow, you know, I got to do this another day. <laughs> yeah, I've worked real hard, but I still got to do this. And, and it's really easy to focus on all the things that I don't have. That's an easy thing for all of us to do. Um, and I always try to remember the things that, that I do have, the things that I've gained, because that, you know, that's, that's what's important. And there was a time when I was in a hospital bed and I would have given anything but my faith, my family, and my friends to be where I am today. And I always try to live with that perspective. When I'm going through something tough, I always try to tell myself, compared to what? No, I'm tired right now, but compared to what? Well, there's a lot that I'm going through right now, but compared to what? There's so much that I do have. There's so much that I can do. Um, I hope we all, we all live with that gratitude and that perspective with us each day, because there are millions of people in this world who would rather be in our situation than their own. That's perspective. Rob, if someone wants to follow up with you, see what other resources you have, or just be a fanboy or fangirl, uh, where do they go? What do they do? 
Yeah. So, uh, best place would probably be just any, any of my social media accounts, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, TikTok. I kind of got a monopoly on the name Robert Paler. Um, there's not a lot of Palers out there. So, so, um, just a simple search and they can find me there. And also my website, robertpaler.com. There's a chat function right there that goes straight to my phone. Um, but for anybody who is inspired by, you know, this message and does want to connect and has something that they'd even like me to talk to them about, I would love to do that. I would happy to do that. Um, like I said, it's the purpose of my life. Um, and I appreciate every opportunity I have to do that. Well, this is called the aggressive life. It's not called the, let's have an interesting guest this week life. It's not called the, called the nice thoughts you might want to think life. It's called the aggressive life. And I think you've, You've really given us a push today, man. Given some of us, some of us have got to get off our rear ends and we've got to forgive somebody. Come on. Rob can forgive somebody who put him in a wheelchair, put him behind a walker. You can forgive the person you think you can't. Some of us, some of us need to see the afflictions that we have as fuel to our future and not an excuse as to why we think we don't have a future. You need to start moving. Some of us, some of us need to give up our petty grievances with God because our life hasn't worked out the way we thought it should. If Robert can be okay with God with what's happened to him, you and I can be okay with him too. And don't just use it as another excuse as to why God's not good. He's not giving me the life I want. Some of us need to do an aggressive move, like tell the friends who are around us, hey man, I'm thankful that you're in my life. I'm thankful for that. I'm not gonna take you for granted. Let's learn from Robert's story. Let's make our story better. That's all I got for you today. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. The Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.